Welcome back. In part two, Dylan begins by discussing why the Gnostic system of thought was considered heretical by Christians. We then talk about the fascinating Gnostic text, The Secret Book of John, and how this creation story is quite different from the one in the book of Genesis, where Eve is not a villain, but the representative of consciousness and reminder to Adam of the real heavenly world. In closing, we discuss how popular culture manifests and represents this topic. I'd like to move back now to discussing uh, the beliefs of the Gnostics, if we want to call them the Gnostics. Uh, you, dis- you, you talked uh, earlier about um, uh, Arrhenius. Uh, I believe I said his name earlier. Uh, I mispronounced his name earlier. Uh, I, apolog- I apologize for that. Sorry about that. But you were talking about how uh, this this was considered uh, a heresy by the Christian Church. This Gnostic uh, system of thought, uh, and and in particular, there was this this issue of the notion of faith versus versus the notion of gnosis. Could you expand on why why the the Gnostic uh, way of looking at the world, why this was considered a heresy in the first place? Well, the Irenaeus has a number of complaints about the, the Gnostics uh, as to why he considers them to be heretics. Um, a big one, if you ask me, the big one is uh, what we uh, mentioned earlier. That is the teaching. They're teaching about the Creator. That the that the Creator is not the true God. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, this is uh, stands. In direct contradiction, contradiction to uh, the Book of Genesis, and to um, as, as understood by so many Jews and Christians in the ancient world, and so many scriptures um, based upon them, including those that we find in the New Testament, right? Um, but Irenaeus has other complaints. Uh, the some of these Gnostics have different; they derive their authority as teachers. Um, from different lineages of the apostles, you know, um, uh, Irenaeus derives his authority um, from apostles going back to Peter and Rome. Uh, however, one of his chief rivals, um, uh, the or sets of his chief rivals rather, the followers of Valentinus, a teacher who was very active in Rome in the mid second century CE. Um, they traced their authority back to this Valentinus, and the Valentinus, in turn, to a teacher who had been reportedly a student of the Apostle Paul. And so you see kind of competing lineages of apostles, like uh, we have competing academic lineages or royal lineages um, today in the modern world. Other teachings had to do with how they understood the nature of Christ. Was Jesus a uh, kind of, was Jesus entirely human? Was Jesus entirely divine? Um, Some of these Gnostic texts taught that uh, it was not actually the physical Jesus, or not not actually the divine Jesus who was crucified on the cross. Rather, this was a only uh, uh, the, the physical or 
fleshly part of Jesus? How can you crucify um, a God on the cross? How would, it, how would a God cry out? A human being could not possibly harm a God. This, this distinction between divine and human was very important in the ancient world, and some of these texts um, uh, re- explored this distinction in ways that Irenaeus did not like. So there were a, a lot of reasons that Irenaeus had for consigning this material to the periphery, um, mainly having to do with creation, but also having to do with a social structure or competing um, apostolic lineages. As for the distinction between faith and knowledge or gnosis, um, this is one that again goes back to First Timothy, um, the the attack of Pseudo Paul, the author of First Timothy, on the Gnosis falsely so-called. Timothy, or rather the, the author of First Timothy, opposes the faith that he teaches to Gnosis falsely so-called. And Irenaeus uses this rhetoric too in drawing upon this text, which he understands to be uh, canonical. However, Gnostic texts that we've discovered um, preserved in Coptic translation do not oppose their gnosis to faith. This is interesting. Um, the, the rhetoric of Irenaeus was taken up in a lot of 19th century scholarship and also among uh, scholars who identified the Gnostics as kind of the good guys. So the Theosophist G.R.S. Mead, for example, saw the Gnostics as transmitting an ancient wisdom in the Western tradition that had been rejected by the church, right? Mm -hmm. He argued that the Gnostics did have real gnosis that was superior to the faith of established religion. And this rhetoric was taken up by by scholars in the 20th century, uh, uh, particularly in the Netherlands, uh, first by Hills Quispel, a Dutch uh, specialist in the study of Gnosticism, and then by, of course, Dr. Hanekraft in his own exploration of esotericism. But it actually has no, this opposition of faith and gnosis has no basis in the ancient Gnostic texts themselves. Um, the, the Gnostic literature from Nag Hammadi um, talks about faith, and it talks about faith as a good thing, and often uses it in uh, equivalence with gnosis, as being on the same plane as saving knowledge. These these Coptic texts uh, use a very diverse vocabulary to talk about saving knowledge. They don't always use the Greek loanword gnosis to describe saving knowledge. For example, they also use the Egyptian word salton, which could be a translation for gnosis. They use um, Coptic phrases to describe special revelations. So for example, uh, this means primary revelation or first revelation. Um, this would, this plays the role that a theologian today would say gnosis plays. But actually, they don't use the word gnosis. So if you read this stuff in the original, what you see is these texts talk a lot about um, saving knowledge, but they use a lot of different phrases for it. And faith, pistis, or the Egyptian word nata, um, synonym, it means the same thing as pistis. You could use it to translate pistis. 
um, is is considered in these texts to be a kind of saving, uh, knowing faculty. So the opposition of uh, faith and saving knowledge is non-existent in the ancient Gnostic literature. Uh, it's important to, uh, to, to talk about that uh, because if, if you look at it without knowing what the, the actual texts say, um, it seems like it's, it was made an issue afterwards um, that, with, that wasn't really there to begin with. Um, yeah. But if you think about it, faith might, might be seen as a lesser form because uh, knowledge means that you actually know. Faith kind of maybe implies that you don't really know, but you're just going with it. Because, you know, somebody told you and you're, and you're going to believe it, but you don't know it really for yourself. So do you see the nuance what I'm, what I'm getting at? Yeah, I, I do. And uh, this, this is, of course, you know, how, how Mead would put it as well. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I mean, uh, but the, how to, how to put it, um, and, and there, are, there are ancient sources that do talk about the primacy of faith and the importance of belief. Um, uh, even if what you believe in sounds crazy, um, uh, I think it is a, a quote, quote absurdum est uh, credo, because it is absurd, I believe, mm. that's Tertullian. Um, of course, the correct answer to that is, uh, well, then why don't you believe in everything that's absurd? Um, <laughs> why do you just choose this? You know, but <laughs> in any case, and that's Freud's response, by the way. Um, but the, <laughs> the, the, the ancient, it doesn't seem that the, the, the Gnostic texts that we have that survive, they don't talk like that, mm. but they also don't talk like Mead in mm. seeing their gnosis that they know as being superior to what other people only believe in. Right. Okay. They, don't, they don't use that kind of rhetoric. Um, and I think this is because they, they do belong to, they are products of Christian communities, Christian subcultures, but Christian subcultures nonetheless. And the language of faith in Christianity is also very important to them. It's, it's good that you point that out. Uh, that's, I, I think that uh, it, that's important to mention. Yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a, yeah. It's a major, there's, there's a real scholarly myth. Many good scholars follow it in opposing faith to gnosis. Mm, and this mm, is because mm. Irenaeus makes a big, he puts a heavy emphasis on it. Yeah. And um, there's a strong New Testament um, uh, precedent for that in First Timothy 6. But it actually, it, does, it, it doesn't pan out mm. if you look at the context. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's just not there. Right, okay. If we consider some Gnostic texts now, um, uh, the Gnostic Bible, one uh, one book edited by uh, Willis Barnston and Marvin Meyer from 2003, includes different texts that we could label "quote unquote" Gnostic. One of those is called the Secret Book of John. And you, uh, in our communication before this podcast, you you mentioned that uh, you know maybe you want to take a look at that, and I did, and I thought this was quite. Fascinating. This is a creation story 
uh, but it's quite different. It's over the top, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's everything. It's a history. It's a it history is. of the universe. You know, <laughs> it's great. It's. I mean, I was I was fascinated by reading this. I was completely enthralled. Um, it, it's quite different, though, than what we uh, what we see uh, in Genesis. Um, and this would, I guess, be like the third act in the in the what you were talking about in the beginning. Uh, this is talking about how uh, how humans, uh, you know, came to be on the earth and, and all of that. Um, you, in the, in the beginning of this podcast, you kind of gave a, a general summary of the, 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 the story itself. In this story, there's a lot of specifics going on. So for those people who don't know all of those specifics and they haven't uh, read that's read it for themselves yet, I would uh, suggest that they do. Uh, and you can find it online. Uh, could you uh, summarize what, what has happening in the story? And then I'll ask you questions about the specifics. Oh my gosh. It's hard to summarize the secret book of John. I mean, <laughs> I, but I guess, I guess uh, what, what I can say is this, I told you to read it because it's one of the few surviving um, a Coptic Gnostic text, a, a text written by somebody who does seem to believe in this stuff, mm -hmm. okay? Okay. That has all four of the acts of the Gnostic drama. Oh, okay. Oh, so, yeah. so, it, it begins, so it begins with yeah. the theogony. It yeah, describes, you know, true. it describes a transcendent father and the production of the aeons and right, they're right. giving glory to one another. It describes the cosmogony, the production of evil Yaldabaoth and his creation of the, the, the bad world and the evil angels who serve him. Um, then there's this long anthropogeny, the, the history of Adam and Eve. The true history of Adam and Eve, not like you've heard it before, right? right? <laughs> and then, and then there's a salvation history, which is exciting, and it has the the angels descending to mate with human women, like uh, in the Book of the Watchers, you know. So it has all four parts, and and it's yeah. coherent. A lot of Gnostic texts only include one or two of these parts, and seem to want to talk about more specific things. And so, part of what's great about the Secret Book of John is that it gives you the whole picture. Um, right, right. And it was popular in antiquity. We have five witnesses for it. Okay. Mm -hmm. uh, one of these is Irenaeus, who summarizes a part of it. Irenaeus knows it. So at least the part that he summarizes is as old as the mid-second century. That's his source. Okay. Then you have four manuscripts. Um, three of these are from the Nag Hammadi find. Uh, one is uh, from a different codex. That is now in Berlin. Okay. Um, of these uh, four manuscripts, two are, uh, there, there are two versions of the text. Two manuscripts have one version that is longer. The second uh, version is shorter. And then, of course, there's the epitome preserved by Irenaeus. So you can always remember this five, four, three, two, one, five witnesses, four manuscripts, um, three Nag Hammadi versions or uh, three translations, two of the uh, versions are the same translation. Um, two recensions, a longer and a shorter one, and then the one epitome of irony. It's five, four, three, two, one. And what this shows us is that the text, because we have so many surviving versions, it was probably popular. Um, and I think it was popular because it was thorough. The downside is it's super detailed, as you know. It's got all these names. It has all these chapters and sub-chapters. 
And so it's, it's difficult to summarize, but you, you do have the four acts. Um, right. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's just then uh, get into the, the questions that I have, because I have a lot of questions. I usually do have a lot of questions about thing. I hope <laughs> in general, but this one, I, you know, every time, every, almost every sentence I read, I was like, what about that? What about that? So I'm, I'm not going to ask That's you. That's my all. experience with teaching it too. You know, like <laughs> I, I, I sign it for a single two hour class and we get through like the first three pages. Yeah. Right. You know, students, <laughs> I understand. Out, out of 30 or 33 pages, students have questions for every line. <laughs> One said, can we just spend the whole semester reading this? I was like, no. But <laughs> the, idea, the idea is at the end of the semester, you'll be able to go back and read this, and you'll be able to read more of it by yourself. You know? Right. Um, I, I totally understand. Okay, so I'm just going to pick out a few things that I'll, I'll ask you about. Right. The first part is actually three parts, uh, three-part question, the first question. Um, but I think maybe uh, for the sake of the audience, uh, the the larger story um, talks about how there was a heavenly Adam, and you mentioned this very briefly earlier, but there was a heavenly Adam, and then uh, that was created by the source, the one, and that, if I'm remembering this correctly, so please stop me if I yeah. get anything wrong. Uh, and right. then after Sophia... Uh, creates her own little mistake, I guess we could call Yaldabaoth. And, and as a little, you know, side note here, uh, Lovecraft readers will recognize this name because that's the Pantheon, one of the old ones. Uh, I, I, I love making these little types of little connections. Uh, so Yaldabaoth, uh, creates the mortal human Adam on Earth after creating the Earth and everything. So in in this in this story of the secret uh, book of John, it it's talking about angels and demons being involved in the creation of the psychical Adam. So that's the first part of this question. What? Why are there angels and demons? I mean, so this would be like good and good versus good and evil together. I guess the, you know, this is just the way I'm just very simply. Uh, you know, taking it in uh, because of the wor- the way those words are loaded with with meaning. And what do they mean by psychical Adam? That's the first part. Yeah, and 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 uh, so uh, the the word you mean when you when you say psychical, mm-hmm. this is uh, this is a difficult word to render. So okay. it, it's based it's based off of the Greek word psychikos. Um, having to do with suhe, that is soul, okay? Okay. Just like psychology mm-hmm. is the is the science of the soul, right? The science of the suhe. So this has to do with the psychic atom. Um, I okay. think uh, there's 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 a better there's a better translation for everyday English than psychic or psychical in this context, and that is animate. Okay. Um, because what in the ancient context. What a suke is, is the, the force that a living being has that allows it to move itself. Ancient people looked at the world around them and they made, one, they made a basic division between things that move by themselves and things that don't move by themselves. So a rock does not have a suke, 
It's okay. because it is inert. It's just sitting there. Mm -hmm. It needs an external mover to come and push it over. But an animal and a plant have suhai. They have souls because they can move on their own. They have self-locomotion. And even the plant follows the sun, you know, mm -hmm. if you look closely. Mm -hmm. So it moves on its, on its own in some way. Um, that's what it means to have a, a soul in the, the ancient Greek context. And okay. the use of the word psychic refers to that, the ability to move on your own. So what's going on in this account? Um, we talked earlier about how ancient readers of scriptures tried to make sense of these scriptures using the scientific tools of their day using reasoning, but also what we consider to be ancient science. Just as today, you can go to uh, any major bookshop or with a religion section and find books that will explain to you how the account of creation given in the book of Genesis is not mutually exclusive with evolution or with the Big Bang. Some scientists who is also a believer in Christianity, has tried to put these things together and make sense of them. Ancient people were doing that too. But they didn't have evolution in the Big Bang. They had Plato. The book of Plato that describes the creation of the world is called the Timaeus. And after the book of Genesis, it is arguably the most influential book about cosmology in the Western, I, I, by this I mean the greater sense, including the Near Eastern and Muslim context world. Okay, um, medieval Islam is all over the time. Yes, they they are definitely uh, engaging it in different ways. The, so, uh, the Plato's Timaeus is hugely influential in the ancient and medieval worlds. And one of the things that um, uh, ancient Christian writers did is. They tried to engage the Timaeus all the time to explain how ancient Jewish and emerging Christian scriptures made sense in terms of Plato. They usually did not argue Plato was wrong. They preferred to argue the scriptures agree with Plato. They agree with science. Sometimes they would say Plato was wrong, but not when it came to the creation of the world. They all thought Plato made too much sense to disagree with him about a lot of these things. Okay? Mm -hmm. So, so several things are going on with the demons and angels helping in the creation of the animate or psychic atom. One is the gap in the passages I mentioned earlier, Genesis um, 1 and Genesis 2. The, the first book of Genesis says that God said, we let us create man in our image, right? Mm -hmm. And then we have uh, Genesis 2, where you have the creation of man uh, out of dust and of mud. And when God says, let us make, in Gen 126, you have this plural. That's strange. This must imply that God has partners. A true single God would need no partners at all. But a, an inferior creator may need some help. And he may definitely have some company. That's Yaldabaoth, who is saying, let us make, in Genesis 126. 
So the idea that you have here is that Moses, who wrote the book of Genesis in Jewish tradition, right? He was inspired not by the true God, but by the false God, Yadabaut, to transmit the story that you have in the book of Genesis. Yadabaut doesn't really understand how the creation of the world works. Rather, he knows that he tried to create things with his subordinates, the evil angels and demons that he created. Meanwhile, you have Genesis uh, 2, where you have the creation of Adam out of uh, clay and dust, and then God blows into his face with the breath of life. This is Genesis 2, 7, right? And this breath, the word for breath is pneuma, wind, okay? Or, or, uh, or spirit, it's the same. And uh, just as in Latin, the word uh, spiritus means both wind and spirit. Pneuma is the Greek word that means both wind and spirit. So the spirit of life is blown into Adam's faith, and thus Adam begins to breathe. That's what you have in Genesis 2-7. So the secret book of John tries to tell the story of Genesis in a way that makes sense of these passages, that includes all of these passages, but then tr tries to incorporate Plato's account into it. So it sounds more scientific. Okay. And the idea is Plato describes the creator of the universe, the Demiurgos, the craftsman, as having little helpers that Plato calls the young gods. And these are the gods of the pantheon of Greek theology, uh, uh, Zeus, Hera, Aphrodite, and so forth. Is another word for that archons? Well, the, arch the archons are Yaldabaoth's helper, are the helpers of Yaldabaoth. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but an archon is a ruler. Oh, okay, so this is and we're it could, this could be difference. Okay. This could be just a, a magistrate or like the town mayor. That's an archon, okay. somebody running the show. Okay. So Plato, Plato doesn't use that term, but it's okay. a very important term for these Gnostic texts. And it's significant that one of the names they give to the evil angels and demons um, who work for the, for the evil creator is a term of authority. It'd be like if you and I, if we wrote a, a, such a myth today, we referred to the, uh, the, the evil demons as uh, magistrates, uh, mayors, burgermeister, um, that the, Really, governors. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Governors is another one. Presidents, you know, mm -hmm. um, businessmen, CEOs, you know, this, that's an archon, a leader, an, an administrator. So there, there's an anti-authoritarian stance baked into this language of the, the evil overseers who are helping the creator God here. And the fact that there are helpers for God, this is in Plato, and in Genesis 1.26, let us make. By the way, the let us, there are other ways you could explain it without reference to the Gnostic myth, of course. One is the royal we, that's yes. good Hebrew, okay? Right. You know, so a king, you know, like, like the English king would say, we do this, mm -hmm. you know, God, he's pretty royal, right? Yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah. um, uh, an another one is, is the ancient notion of the divine assembly that Yahweh is, one of many gods in the Near East, he's talking to some of the other gods. These pop up in other books, you know, mm -hmm. but uh, the Gnostics explained it with reference to Plato. That's what they preferred. Um, okay. 
As for the, the psychic or animate atoms, there is a distinction already in Aristotle um, of the three parts of the human being. There's the material part or the body. There is the soul, the part that allows you to move. Okay? Mm-hmm. That is the suhe. And then there is the pneuma um, or uh, thinking part, uh, the, the, the noose, the mind. Mm-hmm. And by the time you get to um, Christian, Jewish and Christian writers in the first century who are using philosophical models, they identify this mind with a pneuma. Aristotle talks about a mind as being the third part, the highest part. But um, already a Jewish writer named Philo, um, writing during around the time that uh, Jesus is, is, is preaching, he, Philo, writes about the highest part, the mind being a pneuma, a spirit. And this is the breath of life that was breathed into Adam in Genesis 2-7. And this combination of characteristics, reading the biblical text as uh, an allegorical sense, as describing the physics that goes into the different parts of the human being, and also God having subordinate creators based off of Plato, this is not unique to Gnosticism. We also see these in the Jewish writer Philo. What is distinctive to the Gnostic text is the idea that this God, who is the creator, is negative, that he's not an absolute God. Rather, he's an inferior, lower being that you don't see in Philo, who has uh, God making use of subordinates and creating the human soul in the book of Genesis, but he also thinks that God is still the true God. That's very important for him. So the secret book of John participates in these philosophically informed exegetical uh, traditions around the book of Genesis. And that's what you see in the description of the demons and angels helping create the psychic atom. Okay, that's that helps me to understand this better. So we have a uh, a human body that can uh, move itself around, but it's only when uh, Yaldabaoth breathes this mind, I guess we could say, into Adam that we have an actual uh, human being as we understand ourselves to be. Exactly. Right. Okay. And this mind is a, is, is a divine thing. So the secret book of John tells that Yadabalt rebels against his own mother. Poor Sophia. She wanted to create from herself. She winds up with Yadabalt instead. <laughs> and then he steals creative power from her. Right. She he, repents to heaven. Mm-hmm. Sophia made a mistake, but yeah. she's sorry. Yeah. You know, yeah. and, she, and she gets restored to heaven and becomes a good guy <laughs> in the rest of the story. Okay. Um, the, meanwhile, Heaven intervenes, and an agent of heaven tricks Yaldabaoth into uh, uh, getting in, into expunging some of that divine power he stole from Sophia. And the way they do it is Yaldabaoth, he gets up on a pedestal, and he boasts, I am the only god, there is no other god beside me. Sounds familiar? Mm-hmm. Right? <laughs> This is, this is Exodus and Isaiah. Yeah. And again, the secret book of the author, of the secret book of John is suspicious of the words of Moses. The, the author actually writes, of course, this cannot be true. 
or if there are no other gods, of whom could he be jealous? Right. This is in the Coptic text. Okay. <laughs> Good question. Good question. Mm -hmm. So you can, again, you could see how Irenaeus's parishioners are wondering about this stuff, and then somebody who has read a little Plato and heard of a story of the Secret Book of John says, "Meet me at my place tonight. I'll bring some wine. I'll tell you, you know, some. I'll resolve some of these contradictions, and we'll listen to Slayer." And, you know, then Irenaeus gets very angry about it. I mean, you know, so <laughs> it's, uh, this is, this is, it's, it's big trouble. It's big trouble. Of whom could he be jealous? Nobody. Um, instead, what happens is heaven responds to the boast of Yarabaoth with a, a voice that declares, no, you are not the only God. And it gives Yarabaoth a vision of the true heavenly realm of the aeons above him. And what Yarabaoth sees up in that heaven is a true atom, a divine atom, a psychic atom. For the face of the heavens, the, the form of the heavenly, of, of the true God as manifesting itself is that of a human being. There's an anthropocentrism to this, a centrism, an anthropocentrism to this literature that's very strong. That the human being is the most perfect thing on earth, so perfect it does not even belong to the earth. Mm. And Yadobaoth sees that figure, and some versions of the story, he even falls in love with it. Um, and he wants to create an imitation of it. And that's when he sets about trying to make a human being himself using the lower parts that he has, like the soul, the, the principle of animation, and then, of course, body, matter, dust, and stuff like that. He sees that this Adam, it can't move, it, it can move well, but it's, it's not really doing much. So he blows into its face the pneuma, the spiritual power he stole from his mother, Sophia, and Adam absorbs it and becomes thinking and talking. And Yadabalat realizes his mistake for Adam speaking in wisdom from the divine realm that has been blown into him by Yadabalat. He is now a superior being to Yadabalat himself. And thus the human being becomes superior to the creator. Can't have that. Can't have that. <laughs> so a lot of the rest, so a lot of the rest of the secret book of John is the various attacks of Yaldabaoth on Adam and Eve <clears throat> and the rest of, and by extension, the human race. Right. What are the different things Yaldabaoth tries to do to sabotage Adam and Eve? Right. Well, you uh, already answered part two and three of my first question. So where that so that has uh, been explained now. Uh, why? Yeah. Why Yaldabaoth and his angels and demons would subsequently decide to throw Adam uh, into the lowest part of the whole material realm because they're thinking, "Oh, what the what the heck did we do here? <laughs> What's going on? This Adam is now smarter than we are, uh, more more intelligent and and and." and more superior than we are. So that I found that to be a very interesting part of the tale. My next question for you, it regards the part of the story. Uh, the biblical story that we understand is that the serpent uh, tempts Eve uh, uh, with the tree of knowledge. Uh, and this story, however, switches the serpent and puts the figure of Jesus in the serpent role. Why is this significant? 
Yeah, so something that's really distinctive about this literature, and it, it captures people's imagination today for many reasons, um, and it should because it's, it's striking, and, and it's really there also. It's not a misinterpretation. Is that many versions of the Gnostic myth valorize the advice given by the serpent to Adam and Eve to eat of the fruits of the tree of knowledge. They don't always valorize the serpent. In the secret book of John, Jesus kind of temporarily inhabits the serpent and is speaking through the serpent. And there are other versions where the serpent um, is, give, gives advice, but actually the serpent is not necessarily a, uh, a good being itself. It's, a, it's, still, it's still a beast, a nasty beast, and it's disposed of later. But in the secret book of John, that, that doesn't happen. And the serpent seems to be good, and this is why Jesus spoke through it. The significance here is that, and this, and this gets back to the language about gnosis, right? Did the Gnostics talk about gnosis? Did they describe themselves as knowers in a special way? Well, we're not sure that they called themselves knowers, but they did like to take the story of the tree of knowledge and make the tree of knowledge a good thing. And that's a powerful argument in favor of seeing some kind of Gnostic component to this ancient Gnostic theology. This comes up again and again. Maybe they didn't call themselves Gnosikoi, but they sure love the tree of Gnosis. And is that really so different, right? I don't know. I think I think we have to we have to keep that in mind. It's important to to keep that in mind. It's, it's something that's very powerful about this literature. A mm -hmm. uh, big thing is that it displaces, of course, the responsibility for sin and the existence of evil from Eve. Right? Yes. So much theology, as we grow up with it in the 20th and 21st centuries describes the root of sin to Eve, the woman, making a mistake. Think of all the misogyny that follows mm -hmm. from that. We all know it. And it's right there in the story. Adam's going to have, as punishment for eating from the tree, Adam's going to have to work the rest of his days. And Eve, bad Eve, she's going to have to go through childbirth and be subservient to him the rest of her days. Um, these Gnostic myths don't tell the story like that. How can knowledge be a bad thing? How could knowledge of good and evil be a bad thing? These cannot be bad at all, nor is responsibility for evil that of the woman. The responsibility for evil comes from the creator. And the way in which he, the creator puts uh, uh, human beings into bodies that have a propensity to sin, they have desires, they get caught up in worldly things, that's the fault. It doesn't come from Eve. And this displacement of, uh, of responsibility for sin from a woman to the, a more abstract sense of um, the dilemma of physicality, you know, mm -hmm. is, I think, for uh, good reasons, um, uh, really, really important for the reception of this material. It's a, it's a powerful move that speaks to many readers, especially women today.
particularly liked this uh, story in that regard because uh, the serpent, uh, all of that part of the story, Eve isn't uh, mentioned in that part of the story in the secret book of John. Uh, and But you, you've already touched on my next question, which was about Eve, because I'd like to talk about Eve some more. Um, Eve is, in this story, depicted as kind of a part of the divine Adam. That is, they call it in this story, the afterthought. That is a portion of yeah. this, this higher mind that Adam has... Uh, when Adam is is created, the the breath is is breathed into into him, and in this story, once Yaldabaoth realizes that oh well, well wait a minute, uh, this is a superior being, they decide to throw him down to to the to the whole material the lowest of the material realm, which I would take to be Earth. And then they proceed, or he proceeds, and maybe with his group, uh, to try to make Adam forget about everything. But there's this portion within Adam that's they they use this term afterthought, if I remember correctly, that is known as Eve. And can you talk? I mean, I cannot remember for the life of me right now, off the top of my head, how Eve actually comes into existence. But Yaldabaoth didn't like this. He didn't know anything about the fact that Eve was a part of this mind that Adam had received in his creation. So could you expand a little bit on, on Eve and how she came to be? Yeah, What is who is who is the Gnostic Eve yeah. in, in this story? Um, first of all, Eve is the... The, uh, a really important principle in a lot of these Gnostic myths. It's, uh, she appears in many of these myths, and she's never a villain like in the classic story. Right. Okay? Mm-hmm. Now, Yaldabaoth uh, takes Eve out of Adam in an attempt to to uh, uh, remove the, the conscious part of Adam from him. He tries to externalize it. When Yalabal breathes this pneuma, the spirit into Adam, he breathes in the part of Adam that becomes a mind, a special mind, and makes Adam a superior being. So Yalabal tries to sabotage this. And the, one of the things that he tries to do the other bowels in his attempt to sabotage Adam is to create is to take this part out of him by taking the uh, what what it, the book of Genesis Moses right calls a rib the secret book of John says it wasn't a rib it wasn't the rib that uh, Yadabal took out rather he's trying to take out the epinoia you know the the, the afterthought of Adam. This is a word I prefer to translate as consciousness. It does literally okay. mean afterthought, at the after, mm-hmm. noia, thought. Mm-hmm. But if you think of afterthought as being reflection, the part of your mind that can, where you can step back and reflect on yourself, here I am, mm-hmm. right now, that's the part of you that can do that. We call this consciousness in English, okay. right? 
So, so I, I translate this word as consciousness. So Yadavalt tries to remove consciousness from Adam, mm -hmm. and he puts he, he makes a, a uh, he makes a mold after the shape of the consciousness. He can't remove the consciousness, of course, but he's able to make an imitation of it, and that is Eve, uh, in, in the form of Adam. But she's not uh, being an even an imitation of consciousness is not going to be evil. Um, rather, she's going to remind Adam of good things. And so again, one of the beautiful things about the story is the primal female next to the primal human being, she can only remind Adam of the heavenly world. If, uh, 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 the, 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 the woman, the, the form of woman will remind you of good things. Isn't that nice? That That's nice. the story. Yeah, very nice. Much better than uh, we, we read in, in, in so many interpretations of the yeah. book of Genesis. Yeah. Yeah. So, this, and it is this, this afterthought or consciousness that kind of guides Adam and Eve through the rest of the story again and again. And um, this, 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 again, this consciousness itself is feminine. The Greek word epinoia is feminine. And the way in which it plays a role is active is um, uh, refer it's referred to almost like a person, like a female actor. In the story, and so one of the one of the motifs of the Secret Book of John is that salvation is largely driven by feminine salvific agents, Sophia helping out Adam, the Pneuma or spirit. This is a masculine feminine. It, it, it's uh, it's called it, it participates in both genders. Then you have the Epinoia. This is also feminine. All of this is guided by divine providence, forethought, koanoia, also feminine. The long version of the secret book of John even finishes with a personification of feminine salvific activity. And this is not true. This is not only true in the secret book of John. Many Gnostic myths have salvific female figures. And this is part of why they're powerful reading for so many women and lovers of women today. Um, there are, there are other, uh, myths similar to those of the secret book of John preserved at Nag Hammadi, one called On the Origin of the World by Scholars, has no title in the manuscript. Another one called The Reality of the Archon, The Reality of the Rulers. And in these texts, um, the role of Eve is even more prominent, even more complete and emphasized. What does Eve do in these stories? She doesn't just remind Adam of good things. She, of course, becomes the Eve that we know from Hebrew myth, the mother of the living. Um, one of her names uh, is Hawa, life. And so she's often referred to as Eve Zoe, Eve life in these texts. And her role is to be the mother of all of humanity. Um, Yalobaut and his minions, they attack her, and they even try to rape her. There are two reasons for this, I think. One is they have a goal, and in the Secret Book of John, I think it's not explicit. In the other two texts I mentioned, on the origin of the world and the reality of the rulers, it is explicit. They have the goal of creating a human lineage that is not divine, but rather has 
literally goes back, has a genealogy of evil aging. Okay. Creates human beings that are derived from the seed of bad aging. Um, that's one version. That, that's, that's one reason they try to go after Eve and that they attack Eve. And the second reason, I think, is the, these stories want to represent the, the lived experience of uh, sexual aggression and of, uh, of the assault of women by men. Um, this is something that did not just happen uh, in uh, the 21st century, in 2016, uh, <laughs> and Me Too and all that. This, of course, these were lived experiences in the ancient world as well. And I think the description of the evil archons attacking Eve sexually is meant to describe and process and, and disparage and condemn the strongest possible terms, the phenomenon of sexual assault. Um, it's, a, it's a prominent part of these myths, and especially the text, the reality of the rulers, um, puts, it, puts it in as a centerpiece, that the archons attack attack the first women, and the first women defend themselves successfully. They win, but the attack happens. Um, that's part of the negative experience of the world that the text tries to answer with a message of victory. And uh, I, think, I think that's not just something to allegorize. I think there's also, um, uh, it, it reflects experience and uh, tries to uh, uh, tries to respond to real experience. Do you think that this is just something that popped into my mind right now? Do you think that the writers of these texts were women? That's a great question, and you're not the first to ask it. I didn't think so. A number of no, no, certainly not. A number of feminist scholars have 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 offered exactly this uh, uh, hypothesis. Um, I think it's plausible, but it's impossible to demonstrate. Right. right. Yeah. A, a scholar named Sarah Grivitz, she, I saw her give a wonderful paper a few years ago uh, looking for the possible social context in which women could have written these stories. Mm -hmm. And she, she, just, she, she suggested nuns in Coptic monasteries. We know that Coptic nuns could write in the fourth century Egypt. They could have written this stuff. Not impossible. Right. Interesting thought. Interesting thought. I certainly do not exclude this possibility. But I don't want to give the impression that all Gnostic texts are proto-feminist either. Mm. There is a also a lot of misogyny and uh, andro, androcentrism in this literature. Mm. The first principle is usually a father. Yeah. The principle of matter and desire is often called femaleness and femininity. In other words, being a divine woman doesn't mean being female. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> and the, this distinction, I think, has shows us that uh, there are much more complicated notions of gender going on in this yeah. literature than we can process with a male-female dichotomy. Yeah. And don't get me started on the hermaphrodism mm hermaphroditism that is present in some of this literature. Yeah, you know, some, divine, yeah, the divine being is sometimes called male, female. Mm -hmm. they, you can, you can distinguish between gender pronouns in Coptic, um, with uh, the definite article, the, this could be male or female. 
And the same God can go back and forth between these and the same sentence, you know, I mean, it, yeah. it gets pretty wild. So there's a lot of gender bending in these texts. So what, what this comes out to is text, a single text like the Secret Book of John can be, you can look at one part of it and say that's misogynist. You can look at another part and say that's very feminist. You can look at a third part and say this is like fifth wave feminism, <laughs> you know? <laughs> um, I think the best response is to say all of it is queer in the way that cultural theorists use queer to talk about queering yeah. as uh, the activity of bending gender in a conscious and productive way. Very this literature does a lot of, there's a lot of queering going on. Very, yeah. very interesting. Very interesting stuff. I would uh, love to uh, get more into that. Uh, but for the sake of time right now, I'm going to move on to the next question that I have for you. The, actually, the last question with regards to this uh, to this tale. Uh, as we've already uh, made very clear, this is a very different tale than the one that is read in the in the book of Genesis in the Bible. Um, you know, these stories are so different. But in in, in your opinion, what's the greater message of the secret book of John that Gnostics were supposed to be understanding? I don't know if that's like, you know, maybe an impossible question to answer, but what are your thoughts about what is this story supposed to mean to, to us, to the reader, to the listener? Yeah. What, I mean, how, how does, what is the message of a text like this? Um, I think there are a number of distinctive theological upshots to this story. Um, the first one is that the creator of the world is not God, it's, and the creator is bad. The second big one is that you, a human being, are superior to that creator and to the present creation. All the stuff you're going through in your life, that's not you. You're better than it. And all the things that you experience that you don't like, that, uh, that has been thrust into you by the, by the fact of how of the place you were born, the body you were born into, the obstacles that fate throws at you, you are not those things either. You are, you are above all of it. A third thing is that, is this anti-authoritarianism uh, I mentioned earlier. Worldly authorities are agents of that bad creator that exerts power over your circumstances, although that's power that you can dispel. And the ability to dispel the illusory power of those authorities and of the creator is, a, is revelatory in nature. You, you get it through being receiving a revelation of this, this myth that purportedly makes sense of your true circumstances, your true origins, your divine origins. And finally, the, uh, all this is not bad news, it's good news. The Greek word for good news uh, is gospel, euangelion, okay? And these, these texts are gospels. Uh, some of them call themselves gospels, others call themselves Secret books, apocryphon, right? Mm -hmm. 
Um, that's a secret book. That's what you have in the, the title of the secret book of John, the, the apocryphal of John or apocryphal of John. But it actually functions like a gospel. It gives you a message of hope. And that's a, if, if there's one thing I want listeners to take away about the overall message about Gnosticism, that even if there's a pessimistic outlook about the character of the creator and the character of the physical world, this is an optimistic worldview. It's not a pessimistic worldview. Because the, and by which I'm here, when I say worldview, I mean view about everything, the cosmos, greater than the physical world, your mental world, the personal world. This is, this is optimistic literature. It says that uh, you're actually superior to all of the bad things that you see happening around you. It's not real. Rather, it belongs to the world of matter. And there's hope for you. You can be free of it. That's an optimistic message. Very, uh, very interesting message and also quite uh, interesting in that this message seems to be a timeless message. It was relevant for the people of the, of the time uh, that this was being uh, talked about and written about, and it seems to be quite relevant for people today uh, as well. Because, uh, you know, as you know, uh, Gnosticism is is a concept that is often mentioned in contemporary alternative spiritual discourse. I mean, it's it's everywhere out there in the mainstream. I've seen yeah. it in TV totally. programs, YouTube videos, websites, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, this topic is is uh, talked about quite a quite a bit. And you know, with my platform, I'm interested in the way popular culture manifests and represents this topic. And how we see it portrayed in popular culture, such as films, books, and other art forms. Um, I was wondering if you are aware of any contemporary examples that you could share that you find to be uh, noteworthy. Man, I mean, neo-Gnosticism is a vast and fascinating phenomenon reception of Gnosticism as well. Like we could do a whole podcast just on that. And I bet. You should. <laughs> you should. And I can I can recommend some people for you to talk to about it. Um, I love it. But the um I'm the, the the elements of the reception of Gnosticism that I've spent the most time with uh, have to do with art and literature. So I'll just focus on that. Okay. Um is big at the movies. Yeah. There's a lot of there's a lot of Gnostic cinema, as you know. I mean, the classic is The Matrix. Mm -hmm. Okay, you think you go to work in an office every day, but actually, you're that's not you. That's a, that's a reality that was programmed for you. You know, yeah, yeah. and 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 the the creators of that reality are, are evil overlords, right? You know, and you, your job is to fight them. This is this is this is classic Gnosticism right there. Um, in the, the late 90s, for some reason, had a lot of these movies. The Truman Show yeah. is, is Gnostic in this way. That's a, that's a fake reality that Truman has to overcome. Dark City was one of these mm -hmm. as well. You know, there's, there's piles of these movies. Snowpiercer is a more recent one. Um, and I, I think uh, these were certainly part of how I got into this stuff uh, through, through these movies. Um, literature has also dealt with these themes in really powerful ways. Um, uh, Philip K. Dick is a 
is a classic example. <laughs> he, he knew about this stuff through Irenaeus and textbooks about early Christianity. Oh. But, but he wrote several books. You know, but, you know, he had a, 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 you could call it a revelation or you could call it a nervous breakdown. But he had an event yeah. <laughs> where he realized that a, a pink light, you know, from outer space transmitted to him the information that he, his name was not Philip K. Dick. He did not live in the 20th century. He was a follower. He was a disciple of Paul living in the first century Rome. And a demon had tricked him into thinking he was living in a fictional country called the United States. <laughs> yeah. That didn't exist in another time, you know. Yeah. And he wrote books about this experience. You know, these, this is, of course, the Ballast Trilogy. Yeah. Yeah. The name of the light is, is Ballast. And the, the, I remember being very uh, moved by the third book, The Transmigration of Timothy Archer, which is, I think, the most uh, autobiographical of these three books. And strikingly, because that the Nagamati texts had, had barely been published at that point. So he doesn't talk about them much at the transmigration. He, even though he's inspired chiefly by Gnosticism, he doesn't have access to the Dick doesn't have access to the Gnostic text. So instead he talks about the Dead Sea Scrolls more. Mm. And this reminds us how in the very early history reception, early reception history of the Nagamati text in the 50s and the early 60s because there was more information about the Dead Sea Scrolls available to the public at that time, people used them to try to understand Gnostic literature, thinking the Nagamati text would be just like them, but Christian. That's interesting, you see that. And then there are different, something else I'm interested in are different kinds of literary strategies uh, that you can use to express what it's like to have a revelation, you know? What must have it been like to hear this, this crazy story that, that turns everything on its head for you about the true origins of the universe and the real meaning of the Bible in the second century CE. Well, it could have felt a lot like when you watch a movie like uh, uh, The Sixth Sense, you know, yeah. or the others. <laughs> yeah. so spoiler alert, spoiler for your, for your <laughs> listeners, okay? You know, it's one thing, it's one thing to say, like, to, to, to say, I, I see dead people. But it's another thing to realize, oh, I'm the dead person. <laughs> right. It's me. It's me. You know, like, <laughs> and that that twist, that 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 twist in the story that, in one move, turns everything upside down. The rest of the story. Yeah. Um, this 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 is a this is a literary technique, and mm -hmm. and, and it's uh, Henry James who first introduced it in the fantasy literature in the Turn of the Screw. Mm -hmm. Others is based on that, right? You know. Yeah. Yeah. And and this this twist that that kind of metaphysical twist to me that is reminiscent of Gnosticism in a certain way. Reading these texts, these texts are trying to do something like that. I think. Interesting um, that you. Bring, I didn't think of it in that sense, but that's yeah, makes perfect sense. And the 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 master of all these techniques is Borges. Uh, Jorge Luis Borges, the Argentinian fantasist, uh. who was very inspired by Gnosticism. He also did not have access to Nagamati. He was writing in the, the, the teens, 20s, and 30s, but he had access to Irenaeus. And he wrote uh, several stories that talk about Gnostic heresiarchs, Gnostic writers, especially uh, Basilides, arguably 
the oldest Gnostic philosopher living at the beginning of the second century. Um, you know, and the writers who are inspired by Borges, especially in the horror realm, you mentioned Lovecraft earlier. Mm. He also read these stories in the Irenaeus and took some of these names. Um, and there's a, a Ligotti, right? The guy whose story inspired Drew, True Detective, the first season of True Detective. Oh, yeah. He, he also, you know, his writing also has this, gives you this sense of you're discovering some kind of secret that changes how you see the planet, how you see reality. And it's beautiful, but it's also scary. Right. Um, you're talking about the king this, in yellow, right? Exactly. Yeah. The king in yellow is written in this vein. And the more you read, you, you know, on the one hand, you're, you're, you're creeped out, but it's mm -hmm. also blissful. And I think this approximates a lot of the combination of um, uh, paranoia and blissfulness <laughs> that, that coexists in Gnostic literature, you know? Excellent. I, I think this is uh, great that we have these uh, very contemporary examples that people who are listening who might not uh, have made these connections can now look at this again with, with fresh eyes or find, you know, if they haven't seen it before, watch it and, and, and start to look at it in a, in a different way if they're interested in that type of thing that is. Um, but yeah, I think that's, that's great that we can find these very um, easily available and, and also, I guess, examples that we might be able to feel more of a connection with because they're closer to us in time. But yeah, great, great stuff. I love it. In closing, where can people find you and your work online? As you mentioned, I teach at the Universität von Amsterdam, and I also give guest lectures and seminars um, online and in person. Um, I'm all over Europe this summer, and to find my schedule, you can follow the official webpage and Facebook and Instagram sites for the Center for the History of Hermetic Philosophy and Related Currents from the Universität von Amsterdam. Um, my, as much of my work as I am legally allowed to post online, I post on my academia.edu page. And I also blog regularly about the sources for the study of the ancient world at ancientesotericism.com. Great. I will make sure that those links are provided in the program notes so that people can find you. Dylan, thank you so much for a fascinating discussion. I just loved it. This has always been a topic I've been intrigued by, and I'm very happy to have had the opportunity to learn more about it today with you. So thank you so much. The pleasure is all mine. Thank you for having me. I hope you've enjoyed this episode about Gnosticism. My thanks again to Dylan for his time and wonderful insights. Please check out the program notes for websites and other relevant links, as well as reference material, should you be interested to look into this topic for yourself. A new Spotlight interview is also in the works about sidereal astrology over on the YouTube channel, so watch for that in the next few weeks. That's it for now. Be well, everybody. And as always, thanks for listening.